So first, I just I had a few questions that I've been pondering all week, and I just wanted to share them with you. So say you take the wisest person you know, or if you don't know any wise people, imagine a very wise person, or imagine Solomon in all of his splendor and wisdom coming down from heaven and standing in front of you, and you can ask one question. What do you ask? If you had that kind of wisdom available, what is your top priority? What is, what is so important in your life that you say this, this, I have to have an answer about this thing? Or how do you think your life would change if you had wisdom and you knew what God wanted? Or what if I told you that you can be wise? That it's not something you're born with. It's something that you can ask God for and that he would give it to you. Would, would you believe that? See, the Bible, it, it speaks of gaining wisdom quite a bit. It talks about wisdom as if it's something that you can have, that you can, that you can gather, that you can get more of. Something that you can get by listening or asking or, lis- or listening to God or praying. There are these things where wisdom sometimes personified, and she's a woman, like in Proverbs 9, like we read this morning, and she calls out to us and says, if you want to gain wisdom, come to me. And so if you don't feel like you're a very wise person this morning, the good news is that you can become wise by the help of God. That is a request he is eager to help you with. And so the Bible often also says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Or knowing what God considers to be right and doing it is wise. It's something that we can learn to do. We can learn more about God. And by learning about God and living in fear of him, not in an, oh my goodness, I'm going to be smited kind of a way, but in a, you are holy and I need to be kind of way. Acknowledging that he is more than we are. Acknowledging that he is absolutely right to demand obedience from us. That kind of fear. It's, it's a respectful Fear that can coexist with love and compassion and peace and safety. And so, if wisdom is really offered to all who ask for it, and Lady Wisdom in Proverbs 9 is shouting from the street corners and sending out her, the women of her household to go invite people to this banquet that she's preparing, which interestingly enough, she has hewn the seven pillars of her house. So apparently Lady Wisdom also built her own house for this banquet. I mean, there's background to that, but it, it's detailed and it doesn't actually help. But in Proverbs 9, it also says, as part of that invitation, to lay aside immaturity. And that kind of caught me a little off guard, because I don't often think of my mistakes or my immaturity as something that I can just set aside for a moment. You know, I think of immaturity as it's, it's a lack. It's something I didn't have. You know, I, I didn't have wisdom, so I was maybe a little foolish. I made mistakes because I didn't have all the information I needed. I made mistakes because I didn't listen as well as I should have. But yet, Lady Wisdom asks us to lay aside 
our immaturity for a second. And so it continues, and Scripture also says that those who are wise gain even more wisdom when they are instructed or rebuked. Meaning a wise person, when someone comes to you and says, hey, we need to change these things, a wise person will listen. Whereas a foolish person or someone who is immature will react in hate. So, not asking for a show of hands anywhere, but if you could do a quick little mental inventory, how did you react the last time someone said, hey, I think you've messed this up. So there's this ridiculous story that I wrote about a guy named Jeff. Um, And Melanie's smiling already because I originally called it a joke and read it to her and she didn't think it was funny. Um, So it's not a joke. It's not funny at all. Um, It's a ridiculous story because I think it's hilarious. Um, If you laugh, I will take that as a gift and we can move on together. But this story about this guy named Jeff, right? He works a regular office job. He makes a decent wage. He does his best to take care of his wife, his kids, his family. But there's these spreadsheet reports that he's got to fill out every week, and they're just really frustrating, you know? He can never get them quite right. He's always got to submit them two or three times. His boss is always on him about it, and he starts to lose sleep. It starts to, like, really affect the quality of his life because he's got these stupid reports. So he kind of gets tunnel vision. His job ceases to be a source of joy. And so finally he wakes up one day and says, you know what? I need a new perspective. I need to talk to someone. So he takes a couple weeks of vacation. He travels out to Tibet. And he hears that there's this mystic who lives up on this mountain. He's like, you know, I bet that guy could help me out. So he climbs up the mountain. And he finally gets up there. He's short of breath. You know, he walks up to this guy, and this guy is sitting there looking very sage. And Jeff looks at the mystic, and he pulls out his laptop, and he says, well, you see this spreadsheet right here? I just need a little help with cell B13. That's the punchline. It's not funny. <laughs> see, there you go. Thank you for the three of you that laughed. No, but seriously, like, it's, it's a ridiculous story, maybe more of a parable than an actual joke, because it's clearly not funny. But it's the idea that there's this guy who he's got a trouble with something in his life. And instead of just fixing it, instead of just maybe getting a little perspective by taking a day off work, he goes all the way to Tibet to find this monk living on top of a mountain somewhere. You know, like, it's this idea that we set up these things in our lives that if only we had this, then everything would be okay. If only I knew the answer to this, then everything would work out just fine. And oftentimes, if you've ever actually caught the thing, it's like a dog chasing a car. You don't know what to do with it when you caught it. It's not as good as you thought it would be. The car doesn't taste very good. So you end up in your life looking for wisdom and you envision what would happen if I had the answers to all of the questions that I have in life. And you think my life would be perfect, everyone would love me, I would maybe be elected the next president of the United States overnight because everyone would just be in awe of all that I have accomplished. You know, like, you set up for yourself what it might look like, right? I don't think that's how wisdom really works. 
right? So I don't, I don't think that wisdom is there to make the tasks in front of you easier. I don't even think wisdom is there to make you look good. I think that we make the same mistake Jeff makes. We chase wisdom for the wrong reasons because we have the wrong ideas about what it's supposed to do for us. So reading Ephesians 5.15, I'm going to read that passage again. If you still had your thumb in your Bible, well, it's the passage from this morning. Paul is talking to the church in Ephesus, and he says, Be careful, then, how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time, because the days are evil. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs amongst yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father at all times, and for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you read that passage and you see what jumped out to me at least was these either-or kind of statements. Right? You have the choice. You can either be foolish... Or you can understand what the will of God is, which is wisdom, to know what God would want, what God desires. Then you have the choice between getting drunk on wine and having a really great party on a Friday night, or being filled with the Spirit, singing the hymns and songs and, and being together as a community. That one maybe needs a little explanation. I don't think Paul has a vendetta against drunkenness in particular, but I think it was a good example of ways that we can take matters into our own hands. We need to make our lives more fun, so we go to a party. We need to be, we need a better sense of self-worth or self-esteem, so we try harder to provide things for other people. We need to feel like God or somebody loves us, and so we pour ourselves out in service to other people, hoping that somebody will give that back to us. I think what Paul's setting up is this dichotomy, is do you want to go out and do all these things for yourself, or do you want to be filled with the Spirit? Do you want to find that sense of worth and fulfillment in God, and in a community of believers? And stop trying to make it happen yourself. And I think the the other comparison that you can pull out of that is the idea of being content versus working for something more. The next hill, the next thing to tackle, the next achievement to take. There will always be one more. You'll always have enough money when you have one more dollar in the bank. But I think that wisdom is knowing what we've been given and being content with what God has given us. And if we have needs, to ask him first instead of running out and trying to get it for ourselves. The scripture says he is a good father. Not everyone has seen an earthly example of a good father, but God is an example of a good father. If you have needs... He wants to meet them. He wants to see you taken care of and to grow up. 
I don't want my little girls to be dependent on me forever. I want them to grow up and to be sent out and to be women of God. I want them to come back and talk to me. But I want them to be independent. I want them to rely on God, not on Dad. So the temptation that we face, the the foolish thing that we can do, is just to run out and try and take enjoyment of life wherever we can find it. If it feels right or if it feels good to us, let's go for it. But I think wisdom, one of its main purposes is to help us discern the difference between the things that seem good at the time and the things that God gives us and that are actually good. Because otherwise we can be deceived. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis, he's the guy who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. They made a couple books about those, or movies about those books a couple years back. And uh, he wrote another series of books that's uh, affectionately referred to as the Space Trilogy because it's about this English guy who's a linguistics professor who suddenly finds himself on Mars. Um, it's every bit as weird as you think it is. Um, but in the second book, he finds himself confronted with somebody who is completely in tune with what God has asked them to do. And he's walking along and he notices there's this fruit on this tree and he's hungry. So he picks it and he eats it. And it is the best thing he's ever eaten in his life. It's completely fulfilling. He's not hungry anymore and he is super thankful. His first instinct is grab another fruit. And then he realizes, wait, I don't, I don't need it. And something stops him. And he knows he may never find another fruit quite like that one ever again. And that's okay. He continues on and then he's in conversation with someone else and they're like, well, why in the world would you ever desire a good that isn't happening instead of appreciating the good that is in front of you? And that idea of desiring a good that isn't there, that isn't happening, desiring what isn't now, ends up being this this kernel of this desire to change things, to, to play God a little bit, and instead of accepting what God has given us, to go out and make something for ourselves. That's not to say that life is perfect. That's not to say that whenever something bad happens, we just take it and move on. Evil needs to be opposed. And the benefit of C.S. Lewis's story is that the people talking in their story didn't have to worry about evil. And so we need to balance confronting what is wrong and working for what is good and somehow also staying content in what God gives us. I'm not entirely sure how to do that, but I know that if I knew exactly how to do that, I would be a very wise man. And I know that God wants to help us understand how to balance those two things how to balance what it is that he wants us to change and make right in the world, to do his will, but also to be content in what he's given us. So if wisdom is is fearing God and understanding his will and being filled with the Spirit and being content and thankful with what God has given us, how do we actually make that happen? How do we actually become wise? 
It seems almost audacious to say it out loud, right? But I think that the only one who can make us wise is God. And I think the surest way to allow him to make that happen in us is to listen. And if you're anything like me, you're pretty good at giving God your list of prayers, your list of needs, the things that you want. It is infinitely harder to listen to what he wants. But when I am able to do that, I gain wisdom. Not because I'm an exceptionally smart guy. I tell awful jokes. But because I listen to the one who knows. I listen to the one who has created. And I listen to the one who loves perfectly. I need to do that more. There are a lot of things that can get in the way of that kind of listening. But our own desires to do our own thing is probably the most common cause. And so, when I come to the table this morning in communion, that's what I will be repenting of. Is to say, I have made that mistake. I have thought, here I am, and I know what I need, and I know what other people need. And I stopped listening, and I became a fool. So maybe that's something that you feel you can change this morning. Maybe that's something that you can do as you come to the table and we eat the flesh and the blood of Christ. We can turn away from what we want and we can turn back to him.